You're listening to the Rubbish Trip Podcast. Two no-waste nomads talk trash with people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Dr. Susan Cromdike, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Canterbury, is a leading proponent of the emerging field of transition engineering and co-founder of the Global Association of Transition Engineering. Over her career, Cromdike has researched every type of renewable energy technology and sustainable energy system. Through her extensive publications and public appearances, as well as in her recent book, Transition Engineering, Building a Sustainable Future, she explains that this transition is not grounded in miracle technologies that maintain current levels of production and consumption, but in accepting the urgent need to leave remaining fossil fuels in the ground and restructure engineered systems to cope with the inevitable reduction in energy. Through the field of transition engineering, Krumdijk highlights the engineering profession's crucial role in charting society's rapid transition to a low-carbon future and has developed the professional methodology to support engineers to fulfil this role. We recorded this podcast with Professor Susan Krumdijk at the beginning of 2020 and started off by asking her to explain, in simple terms, what transition engineering is. All right, what is transition engineering? Well, it's kind of like what you think it is. We, we know that there's a transition in our future from the way we've been doing things in the last century to the way that we'll be doing them in the next century. And if you want something to work, then you have to engineer it. And all of the systems that need to transition are engineered systems. So the people who are going to make them work are going to be engineers who already know those systems and have a new competency called transition engineering so that they can change those systems rapidly and in ways that provide benefits that we might have forgotten that we used to have. So that's about it. It's uh, <laughs> answer the question with, with itself. That's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're talking about transition, does that encapsulate a broader swathe of things beyond, say, a low-carbon future? Is this transitioning to whatever needs we may have in 100 years' time or so on? Um, the transition engineering, I think uh, it, it's a sort of engineering that we have in other fields, uh, like safety engineering or security engineering, disaster management engineering. There's a lot of ways of looking at systems where you have had unintended consequences. So you did things that seemed to work really well, like safety engineering was really the first kind of transition engineering because the ships, factories, machines, all sorts of things worked well. People were making lots of money, things were getting done faster. You know, things were great with all these new machines and new energy sources. But there were a lot of un unintended consequences, mostly maimings and deaths. Mm. So at some point, the engineers who make those systems and run them sort of looked up and went, Ugh, okay, <laughs> we could do better than that. And that's actually the first rule of safety engineering is prevent what's preventable. Mm -hmm. And then the next was probably after the San Francisco earthquake, the people who had done most of the building of that city kind of looked at it and went, you know what, 
that earthquake was really bad and a lot of things fell down, but there were a lot of things that went really wrong that didn't have to go wrong. And so they started looking at um, natural hazards engineering and thinking forward. And this is the thing you start to see with this kind of engineering is that part of the methodology is to think forward about what could happen. Hmm. And this is really special, I feel, because a lot of our other fields like science and economics, that's not really their job to think forward in the long term. But these fields of engineering, um, security engineering, you think about how could somebody get into your um, hack your system. And then we also think a lot about human behavior and economics and social issues and environmental and crowd behavior. So there's a really rich history of engineering that's not just your, you know, making iPads and stuff like that, not just the manufacturing or, you know, fun technologies and gizmos. And that is now what we're seeing that transition engineering is the next evolution of that. Mm. Probably the hardest unintended consequence that we've ever had because it's also the broadest, you know, it's, it's across all sectors and it's really mission critical in a way that is a little bit harder to see. But here we are with the, the ability to look at the planet with satellites and to model things with computers in a way that even 10 years ago we couldn't do. I think we're ready to go with transition engineering. And yep, same as safety engineering, number one mission is prevent what's preventable. So you're basically just taking the fundamentals of past ways of doing engineering and applying it to the current context and the current, I suppose, unintended consequences of the way we've been using energy. Yeah. And that is what engineering always does. If you think about how many fields of engineering we now have, we have uh, electronics engineering. How old is that? And we have, well, okay, civil engineering is the oldest one. We all, mm. we all agree on that. That one goes all the way back to the Roman times. Mm. Then we have a lot of military engineering that's been around over the centuries, and mechanical engineering starts coming in. Probably our first big guy was Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. <laughs> Did some pretty cool mechanical engineering. And then as you know more things, engineering always builds on what's already known. That, that's just a rule. So yeah. you're right. Transition engineering has uh, the way we've put together the methodologies that we use. We pull from everything that works. And that is one of the rules of engineering. You use what works. Mm. So in terms of thinking about using what works and thinking about one of the biggest crises or challenges that we face that we need to transition away from, I guess, is, well, basically climate change. And lots of policymakers and green groups putting a lot of faith in the technological fixes to this problem, you know, things like renewables and electrification of everything. I mean, what's your view on these as the answer to the climate problem from the perspective of transition engineering? Okay, well, this is a really good question because this is where it gets fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what we're going to do here is that we're going to take both of our hands and put them out in front of us. And we're going to say, on the right hand, there's one way of looking at things. And on the left hand, there's another way of looking at things. So that's why we call it on the other hand, right? <laughs> All right. So on the one hand, more renewables 
is a thing that the future looks like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. But on the other hand, if more renewables don't actually solve the problem, then we have to keep looking. So we go back to the right hand and we look at the renewables and we say, are you solving the problem for us, renewables? How about if we put more money in and we, you know, we did even more, we made them cheaper, something like that. And that's when you have to go back to the other hand and look at the actual data and see that the emissions are coming from extracting fossil carbon from the ground, putting it through well-engineered systems to do whatever you want to do, and it goes in the air. So if the renewables are not directly leaving fossil carbon in the ground, then that thing that we're looking at and thinking it's the solution might actually be delaying what the actual solution is. Mm. So while yes, on the one hand, renewables is what the future looks like. On the other hand, don't forget that it looks like very, very small and judicious use of fossil fuel. Think about how we're going to get to that future. On the one hand, we say, build lots of renewables. But you got to not forget about the other hand, which is wind down the fossils. Mm. So is this a dual problem because the renewables themselves take fossil fuel energy to create? Or is it because the energy they produce, it doesn't substitute for the energy you can get from burning fossil fuels? Well, those things are both there. Those are both true. But the main thing is that the problem of producing less fossil fuel is really not got anything to do with whether you're using renewables or not. It's its own thing by its own self. And it's a very big thing that is lurking right out of sight where you can't quite see it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is the only thing that matters, which is to just produce less fossil fuel. And this is where transition engineering is a very disruptive way of looking at the world. Because the first thing transition engineers learn to do is to look that beast in the eye. Mm. And to contemplate something which is not even in our vocabulary, which is a reduction, a retreat, a wind down of fossil fuel production, right? And we, don't, we don't really have very long. <laughs> Google that. <laughs> yeah. Like we don't have much time either. Like if we're looking at the, the science around climate change and how, how much time we have to kind of turn things around to avoid runaway effects. It's not like we have a couple of decades to work things out. Right. And when I went into engineering in 1981, as an undergraduate, I went into engineering to work on climate change. Well, we mm -hmm. called it global warming back in the day. Mm -hmm. And we were going to solve that by working really hard to make wind and solar affordable, make them better and affordable. And I have worked on those and biofuels and hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. And so that last, oh my gosh, how long has it been since 1981? <laughs> uh, <laughs> 40 years. Good. 40. 40, 40, yeah. 40. Wow. I'm afraid it's 40, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back and you say, okay, maybe it was a little bit reasonable to be thinking that that was indeed what we were going to do. But in that time, since, since 1980, 
how much more fossil fuel per year are we actually producing? Mm. And the answer is a amazing amount considering that we already knew what the problem was. Mm. So that thing that we did where all the people who understood got excited and got energized and got inspired about how to save the world and we knew what that was going to look like and what we were going to do. We cannot afford any more of that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, You're yeah, right. And, 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 and interestingly, so the amount of renewable energy systems that have actually been built and put in place has gone up too, but so has fossil fuel use. Yeah, fossil's still winning by miles. Yeah. When, and when but, you think about that, it isn't a race about more. Yeah. It's actually about the decline of the one that's causing the harm. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I'm seeing. I'm just right now parking renewables off to one side yeah. because there are enough people on the planet who understand and know how to make and can install renewables. Yeah. And they have their own unintended consequences, which we should not put our hands over our eyes and not see. Mm-hmm. We need to think forward as much as possible. But it's time to turn around and face that thing that's been lurking there out of sight and say, all right, you, <laughs> guess what? Game on. obviously work this out but the tech these technologies aren't really the answer and you can demonstrate this through basic physical principles but why then do so many engineers get behind projects like hydrogen fuel or whatever and why does everyone else in society policymakers politicians so on have so much faith in this techno fixed narrative if it's so obvious that it's not all right i'm gonna have a weird answer to that question (laughs) go for it and it's gonna be that we have probably a hundred thousand years of evolution of being social storytelling beings. Mm. <laughs> and the story is everything. Ask marketers, mm. ask your preacher, mm. ask a politician, ask an economist. Mm. The story is everything. The world is too complex for us. We have a brain that can understand the world in a way that other animals can't. And that is too much for us. Mm. So we always couch what we know in a story that we can handle. Mm. And that story oftentimes is wrong. It's not a surprise that it's wrong because we can't know everything. And sometimes the story is just useful. It's not actually correct. So the story, uh, okay, here, I'm going to confess. Are you ready? Yeah. Um, Would have been 1998 when I got a grant and I started working with Siemens Westinghouse and I was quite excited and I was going to solve Siemens Westinghouse's one big problem so that their solid oxide fuel cells, which would turn hydrogen into clean electricity, could become a reality. Yeah. Okay. It was a material science question. I did it. I did it at a better cost than what they were hoping for. It was all great. And that's when I found out that this whole hydrogen thing is a story. And luckily I had actually studied a lot of sociology and anthropology and psychology as an undergraduate. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, (laughs) surprise, that wasn't technology, that was a story. 
Mm. And that, that story, you know, wasted a couple of years of my life and a lot of my money. And I thought, okay, how do you spot these stories? Because I'm a PhD person with lots and lots of lots of engineering knowledge and I didn't spot it. I wanted to be part of the solution and get that hydrogen to the market and yeah. yeah. So I do not hold politicians or the public or anybody to account for buying the story about hydrogen yeah. <laughs> because I bought it too. <laughs> mm. yeah. I get it. <laughs> and it actually took me a couple of years before my brain just kept going, okay, no, no, look at what you're seeing. Look at it. Look at it. <laughs> and you go, wait a minute, this can't ever work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I kept working on hydrogen for about six more years because I kept having PhD students who really wanted to, they wanted to save the world, you know, they wanted to do the hydrogen. And I would tell them, no, you don't. And they'd say, yes, we do. And then they'd get a scholarship and then we'd have to work on it. And, <laughs> yeah. and then by the time they got to the end of writing up their thesis, they're just like, oh God, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> so it is a captivating narrative. And I wonder whether perhaps the first step in transition engineering is actually about engineers coming clean, that many of these technologies actually don't stack up as feasible low carbon alternatives and maybe being honest with your clients or whatever. It's kind of like an ethical call to be honest professionally. Well, look at how fast you learn. Guess what the second rule of safety engineering was 100 years ago when safety engineering was founded. I already told you the first one, prevent what's preventable. The yeah. second one was be honest. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you can imagine that they were, those people working, okay, so these are the engineers working on these factories of the Industrial Revolution that were cranking out all these new products, but they were just chewing up and spitting out the workers. It wasn't nice. Mm. And you can imagine the situation they were in. The economy was booming. The politicians were loving that. Yeah. <laughs> they were really powerful industrialists. And then there was this fodder of humanity that was trying to get away from famines in Europe. And they were just trying to survive and find a better life. And they could, you know, they were in a really bad place. They were taking these jobs, which were just really dangerous and killing people. And they had started protesting. And what they were protesting for was, you know, they didn't even know what they were asking for, but we can't keep dying like this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't right. This We can't keep doing this. And the politicians would push back. Well, what do you want to do? Wreck the economy? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds familiar. And the, the, the factory owners are like, well, if you don't want the job, you don't have to take it. It's just the market, right? It's just market forces. Mm. You know, we're just, it's just the price of progress. Suck it up. <laughs> and the engineers building and running the factories, they probably actually knew that they could do things differently. They knew what the problem was and they were not yet brave enough to do something about it. It takes courage to be honest. Mm. And it was when they got together, 62 of them in one place after a really horrific safety failure in a factory that killed 148 young girls in one go, they got together and they sort of linked arms and said, okay, together we are going to prevent what's preventable and be honest with our employers and the public about what the problems are and what we can do about it. 
and we are going to get to work. And it was because they banded together and formed a professional organization, which gave them the power to say, okay, look, we're going to set standards and we're going to do things in a particular way. And we're going to work out what actually works and we're going to just do it. And 70 years later, the government finally set up the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. Mm. So this taking the lead on what needs doing, that has happened with all those other fields I've been talking about. And yeah, that being honest about what the problems really are and what the solutions really are is hard to do by yourself. Right. (laughs) Absolutely hard to do by yourself, which is why I've put in a lot of work with a bunch of other engineers around the world to set up a global association for transition engineering. We're going to stick together on this and we're going to tell the truth. You're right. Mm-hmm. And so what does the truth look like apart from what the future isn't going to be? What would a low carbon future look like from an engineering perspective, or at least what principles would a low carbon economy be guided by that isn't what we have now and isn't this false solution that is otherwise being promulgated? All right. Well, like I said, false solutions a bit interesting because what we do already know um, we will use as much as possible. Yeah. So, so it's not like renewable energy isn't in our future. That's not a thing. I mean, that of course we'll use renewable energy, but there is no such world where renewable energy substitutes for the way we have been using fossil energy. That is the fallacy, okay? You see a slight difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and it's a really important difference. So the world then, therefore, will be a renewable energy world. What does that look like? Well, let let me just give you an illustration. An awful lot of people know that there are eco batches or eco homes or you know a remote house that somebody's built a lot of people have an experience with that if somebody who was too far from the grid and they built a house and they run that house with wind and solar and probably firewood for heat and what you'll find if you look at it is that they in no way substituted the solar panels on the roof for the grid the house runs completely differently. Mm. Okay, so just think about that. If you were going to live off grid, yes, you would put solar panels on your roof. Yes, you would get some batteries. You would also have a backup generator for when the sun's not shining, by the way, Mm. but only for the essential needs. Mm. You start to understand one of the key design parameters for transition engineering, essentiality what is actually necessary and that that you think facing the beast this little monster that doesn't want to be known that it's actually production of fossil fuels that is causing the problem well once you face it understanding that it isn't just about what the market wants it's about what people need Mm. and that's a different kind of economy it's a different kind of design but it's still an economy and it's still good design and we'll all be fine. That's the thing that once you get past those two frightening episodes of having to look at things you don't want to look at, then you start to just problem solve and go, Oh yeah, okay, yeah. could do that. Yeah. And that's what people who build off grid do. So many people start off with expectations that are just way too high for what their budget and what solar can do. Yeah. And then they pair that back and they pair it back and they pair it back until they get to what's essential. Mm. 
I guess it's not that dissimilar to one of the things we talk about is sort of living a low waste lifestyle. And, you know, there's a lot of people that might think that means you go out and buy products that help you to reduce waste. But really the fundamental, the fundamental thing is just changing how you consume and changing your expectations about what you can and can't have. Just consuming less, more locally, more simply. And yeah, I think the expectations that there are a whole bunch of things that you probably can't get if you want to avoid plastic, because plastic has made it possible for those things to be on the supermarket shelves or to come from the other side of the world. So to a certain extent, we've become so used to a lot of things in our economy and our lives, which we think is normal or we can't go without, but in actual fact, we can. And that's probably the best way to reduce our impact. Right. Well, everybody, I, I just said we, we have to wrap our reality in, sto- in stories in mm-hmm. order to manage with all of the things that we know. Probably the biggest one being that we aren't going to be here in the future. That's, that one's hard to deal with. So we wrap lots of stories around that. Yeah. But there's another thing that we do that helps us manage, and that is habit. And so once we have an established way of doing things, if you think about it, for most of the last 100,000 years, if you had an established way of doing things, we eat that plant, we don't eat that plant, we must boil that berry before we eat it, or we'll die, right? You don't go around changing those things. And so habit is actually a survival mechanism. It's really important. So I get it. I recognize it. But our habits as modern people in this modern economy where everything around us has been engineered, you know, that, that plastic milk bottle is part of a whole engineered system that squeezed a bit more profit out of a particular thing by, a, by the way the packaging is made and how it's distributed. You know, I don't think we recognize how much of our lives are set within a system that was engineered. Mm. And so we've got habits that are established because they work. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that people don't want to change what they know works. And so that's where, again, the transition engineering is upstream, changing that system. I think it's, okay, is renewable energy in the future? Yes. Is good consumer choice in the future? Of course. But is it the way that we get to a future? And the answer cannot be yes. Because the systems that, with, that produce the choices you have haven't yet transitioned to what's sustainable. Yeah, right. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, make all the good choices you possibly can, but recognize that what, what would be even better is if you followed upstream where the things that you don't want to choose came from and write them a letter and say, you know what? I'm on a low-waste lifestyle now because I choose to be. And the most common thing that rings through my head, me and other low-waste lifestyle people, is do I really need this? Mm. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do I really need this? Okay. And the second thing is I do really need this, but why is it in plastic? Yeah. <laughs> and so I like your product and I need your product and I want to know why is it in plastic? Can't you figure out another way to do that? And the third question I have is, why can't I get that in a way that doesn't take a whole lot of carbon? And so I want to ask, why am I getting a tray of eggs that says it was packed in Auckland when I'm pretty sure the eggs were grown in Timberu? (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't you do your business some other way? 
So push back because that right there is a transition engineering product project responding to the pushback. You can't change what that company does, right? Yeah. And the company can't change it just by thinking about it. It can only change it through a project to change it. So if they're getting the pushback and it's much more effective pushback to write a letter and tell them what you need and what, what your questions are about why can't it be a different way? Mm. That is good pushback. Then they will turn around to someone in their organization and say, could we do this another way? Mm. And that's where the transition engineers come in because it's hard to think of what that new way would be, which is why we have a methodology that focuses all of the power of change management, discovery, innovation into that space of how do you change something that already works, but in the way that it can't keep working. <laughs> mm. You and other engineers around the world have spent a lot of time developing those principles and that approach of transition engineering. But because we're so deeply attached to those solutions that aren't really solutions or just completely off track, like how do we actually get from that business as usual way of thinking to a transition engineering approach? Okay. <laughs> to answer that question, I have to put a lot of hope out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because on one hand, I know that if there was this just mm, tsunami of flipping of, of, of idea, right, that kind of the way that safety engineering happened, safety engineering must have been a pressure that was built up for a long time. Because once those guys sat down and wrote down those couple of simple things, it just spread like wildfire and it kept going and it kept, they kept looking. And actually that is their next rule that you look for what's not safe, right? Observe, you look for what's going wrong and then you work to change it. And that is, that is exactly what transition engineering needs to do. So my big hope is that I and myself and the other transition engineers of the moment can figure out how to ignite that spark yeah. in our own professions. I think that engineers are not so isolated from the world <laughs> that they are unaware of the issues. I think they can keep themselves busy and not have to think about it too much, but I think they're aware. And I think that they also know that they have responsibility. What they don't know is what they would do about it and what they don't know is if doing something about it would be allowed. You know, in engineering, you're not allowed to do things that would be risky or, you know, you've got to follow, follow what's known. Mm. That's one reason why I spent a lot of time writing down in a book, an engineering book, what is known so that you can now follow it and do those jobs of transition. So again, like I said, a hope that putting together the professional organization, which we just got up and running last year, and we're starting a big membership drive to get our first tranche of membership in. I'm working on getting very easy and teachable units up online so that it can just spread as fast as possible and getting awareness out. Uh, again, I'm focusing mostly on engineers because engineers are only what? Less than 2% of the working population. And yet they're the ones who have not yet joined this, 
they haven't yet joined the project. <laughs> I mean, and those who, those who are moved to do what I did. They go into what they think the solutions are and they, they work on the renewables and sustainability. And that's actually been our first wave of membership is people who are in their later career they have turned around and looked and gone, wait a minute, 30, 40 years ago when I went into sustainability engineering, I thought that's what was going to solve the problems. Mm. And yet, what are we doing? And that's when they start looking for, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Because that is now business as usual, having sustainability engineering and saying sustainability all the time. Mm. That is business as usual, and we can see where that's going. Yeah. So that's who we're picking up first is people who sort of are, have already tried the green tech solution route and have figured out that we're going to lose if we keep going and just doing that. But we actually have to like, okay, I am stepping right up and working with oil companies and gas companies and coal companies and car companies and airlines because they need to know what to do. <laughs> If we're in a situation where all the fossil fuel stays in the ground, how would some of these, for example, airlines, how would they even function in the future? Okay. Well, now we've started to shift to where it seems like it might be possible to save the planet. Mm -hmm. And we now understand what it will take. We aren't confused that it will take more solar panels. We now understand it will take less fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't understand what that looks like because that has never been our experience. Nobody alive on this planet has ever experienced less fossil fuels. <laughs> There's always more. Even when we had leveled off because of the Great Depression or our Great Recession, I'm sorry, or back in the 70s, the OPEC oil embargo, that was 7% less and it was a shock and it was intentional and all this good stuff. And what it looked like was mayhem. <laughs> we don't want to do that. <laughs> So how can it possibly be that this thing you're talking about is what's going to work? All right. Well, let me start with airlines because airlines, okay, uh, when I was a young person, I actually remember my first flight on an airplane and that was in 1980. And the idea that getting on a plane and going somewhere was actually a very special thing. Why would it have been special? Because there weren't that many flights, actually. It just wasn't what you needed to do. All right. If there were fewer flights, there would be less fossil fuel burned and put into the air. I think that's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. So right now, if there were, say, 50% fewer flights, there would be 50% less emissions from, from uh, air travel. There would be a lot less goofing around <laughs> mm. yeah. by flying. <laughs> we would still do our goofing around. But yeah. we might do it on the ground. Yeah. We might do it in a kayak. And we <laughs> might do it down at the hall with music going. Yeah? yeah? We are humans. We will goof around. But we do not need to burn fuel at the rate that jetliners burn it in order to survive. Yeah. You would have fewer flights. People who had a mission, who had to go somewhere, they would go online and they would look for a flight and they would book it. And it just would happen 50% less. You see what I mean? Oh, probably, wouldn't it? Mm. It's, uh, if you're going to do it, it's got to be worth a lot to do it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's just 50% fewer flights. And that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. This is someone that that's just that's just that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying that this would obviously require policymakers and politicians to kind of have that mandate from the public to take this kind of action, right? Because surely that would have to be legislated. Couldn't imagine. Would it? Well, yeah, I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it, uh, okay. I think that the transition we're talking about can be talked about by legislators. And we've got that now. This, this new government that we've got, they can say the words and they can mean the words and they can understand the imperatives and they cannot figure out how you would take the current number of flights, the current flight patterns, the current um, gate arrangements, the current maintenance schedules, shift schedules for Air New Zealand, and next year have 10% less flights. They cannot do that. The only people that can do it are the people who know all those systems at Air New Zealand. Mm. And not to mention the company's own projections to increase flights, right? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Remember when we were talking about the stories that you have to keep you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's been a story of the last, oh my gosh, it's probably at least 200 years where, okay, we've put a name to it since the 30s called growth. And, you know, it's that, that whole thing is a, as fanciful as hydrogen. It's just a, it's a way of talking ourselves into things. But like I said, we are really, really good at that, right? Mm. I mean, we're ta- <laughs> there was a time when it seemed like a good idea to find a lovely virgin and throw them into a, into a, <laughs> into a volcano. Uh, uh. <laughs> you know, you do what you got to do to keep things going. <laughs> so, so let's not be surprised that we talk ourselves into dumb stuff. So I'm not that worried about that. The story that we tell ourselves will evolve with the systems that evolve. Yeah. And the, you know, you, you just simply cannot keep going with the story we've got. It, you know, somebody needs to nail 93 theses to the door and say, look, what you're saying isn't true. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And maybe Kate Raworth has done that, right? There are some economists now who are piping up and saying, you know, our theory actually misses at least 80% of what's actually happening in the economy. <laughs> yeah. And we think it might be energy. <laughs> I think there is a fundamental lack of awareness about how energy flows through everything in our economy. When people think about reducing energy, it's often focused around activities like transport and electricity and so on. But I read an article recently, actually, that talked about how we really need to recognize that every item we have in our life required a small fire to be burnt somewhere. So there's also this unhealthy obsession with stuff in terms of how energy flows through the economy and all the stuff requires energy. And, and maybe it's easy for people to kind of ignore that because it's, it's like the thing's there already. It's hard to think about its life cycle. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, our, our supply chains and our manufacturing and our, and our freight and our marketing and retail is now this global project, which is quite complex. And I've only seen, you know, even researchers who care about this, there's not that many cases where people have been able to chase down the entire life cycle footprint of even one product. Mm. So it's not a surprise that 
a person that walks into Countdown can figure that out. So that's not a surprise. What I do know is that if you turn off the spigot at the other end, everything else will work itself out. Mm. Because there's a lot of clever people around. And I don't know how old you guys are, but can you remember before globalization? I can. Um, I can remember before the malls. I, I moved to New Zealand right about the time Westfield started building some of its big malls. And when I moved to New Zealand, the SUV was not a thing that was on the road. Yeah. You know, the, we've come to normalize things that are not normal. Mm. Yeah. And they certainly aren't there in the future. So we can, we can get preachy about that and say you should feel guilty or whatever, but that isn't useful. What I think is that people are pretty much rational and they do what works. And when something doesn't work, they look for what will work. And so what we need, what, what uh, the, the job of transition engineering actually is, is to deliver the other. Mm. Right? So right now, uh, I saw an article recently about Auckland getting the public transport system, getting the bicycle systems, you know, these alternatives to the car. And then they sort of said these unfortunate things like, and then pushing people out of their cars, right? We want to get people out of their cars. Well, get a clue. It isn't that people don't want to get out of their cars. Who wants to spend two hours a day sitting in a car? Yeah, right. It's that the other does not yet exist. And so if you think about something like an industrial revolution, except it's a redevelopment revolution, right? You don't want to waste one bit of energy or material that we have already invested in what we've got. But can it be reworked without more energy and more materials into something that does not need those fossil fuels? And that is the project of our time, because that is the other. That's where we're going. And that's, again, step uh, four in transition engineering is to go there 100 years in the future and let your engineering mind rebuild this world. You don't get to start over and start new cities and new places. You've got to take what you've already done and figure out how does it work without fossil fuel. And answer number one is it doesn't because it was designed for fossil fuel, (laughs) but it transitions into a world that doesn't need fossil fuel. And you see that it's quiet except for laughter because the kids are playing in the street and it is not polluted and it is not dangerous. We don't have little kids getting run over by SUVs (laughs) and it is a lot more green There's a lot more things going on because there's 30% of the space in our cities, which has now been freed up for human activity. Mm. And it's a really cool place. And I think we want to go there. All right. How do we transition to it? And it's going to take work. That's all. That's a great note to end on, really. I think part of it is also accepting that even though we need to use less fossil fuels and we have to change that actually, if we think about it as an opportunity to improve the life and the world that we have, rather than thinking about it as having to go without or a sacrifice or negative, it's probably going to make us much more willing to start to think about the transition. Right. And any engineer that you know, just say to them, transition engineering, Google it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Get on to that job. Hey, thank you so much for your conversation. You bet. Your, your wise words. Well, thanks for talking to me. 